broadcasting our pirate signal here at the end of the age, teaching you the truth to encourage you to resist the conspiracy to destroy America and to enjoy the battle to overthrow tyranny in Washington, D.C. So today we have to really just delve into this fascinating topic of Bible prophecy and the scriptures and, um, of course, many people today and our you know, modern sensibilities are going to discount old writings of antiquity and think that maybe it's you know fantastic that they can be uh, relevant to today because of course who could you know possibly in the realm of the supernatural be able to forecast the future from many 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 centuries ago uh, over uh, 2000 years ago in fact many of these writers were able to uh, the, the prophets famously in the bible were moved by the spirit of god to write down scenarios and visions, premonitions and forecasts of the future that they saw in spiritual states. And in these particular, of course, these ideas of mysticism uh, at the time in the Middle East around Babylon and Egypt, especially the ideas of having mystical visions and dreams were something that was pretty typical for soothsayers and necromancers and, and seers and sorcerers of various stripe or, or famously operating in that age, trying to find a way to you know, contact the spirit world, to try to forecast events. So it uh, shouldn't surprise us that the children of Israel, the Israelites, and their God, their famous God, Yahweh, have a whole wide catalog of prophecies that have endured through all these ages. And it's, it's, not, it's kind of an amazing factor to think that all these writings have been kept together and intact over all this time. And for many people, and including my, the, myself, these prophecies are, are very enlightening. And they're not kind of the mindless, meaningless sayings of Nostradamus, but these are in fact very highly detailed and very vivid descriptions, including where uh, locations, colors uh, of different armies, I mean, the, the highly specific details of biblical scriptural prophecy are different and distinct from every other kind of religious missive or ideology in the world because the entire focus of the bible and of the special spiritual relationship between the israelites and their god is based in prophecy so maybe you have some other religious traditions that have a couple of thin prophetic types that are built into their belief systems, but you have to understand that the thing about the Bible and the people of Israel and the Jews in this instance in the Old Testament is that the entire book is is filled with highly specific promises of future events that are that are not even remotely unclear. So that their their target forecasting is incredibly specific. So it, it, we would be remiss if we didn't try to do our best in these episodes to show you and the, the public and people who are listening the very specific forecasts of the prophecies that are about to occur. And one of them that's most interesting that has been a famous in the Bible for many, many centuries, as long as we've had the Bible and as long as it was brought back into popular history, let's say we have to go back to 1517, really, in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther, who was a, a scholar who could actually read the Bible, most people at the time could not read at all, but he could read many languages, and he was able to read the New Testament and the Old Testament very, very closely, and he began to shine a light on the importance of those scriptures and how powerful and spiritually edifying and illuminating they are for our souls and for our lives, so that he was he was saved, he was transformed, he was he went through the process of 
becoming born again. That's what happened to Martin Luther. He, he read the scriptures and he saw the hope that the salvation brought forward by the work at Calvary, by Jesus Christ, and the, the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's one of the most important things to understand about the life of Jesus Christ that makes him different from everyone else who's ever lived is that his life specifically and exactly, precisely fit and fulfilled dozens and dozens of prophecies that were in the Bible were written, you know, a thousand years before his time, even. So we're talking about prophecies that are go back over 3,000 years and who predict the, the specific events that are about to occur in our lives today. And it even, it even goes as far as to predict that there would be an age of highly scientific and a highly advanced age of scientific technological development. It, it, it goes into great detail to describe in the Bible, the, the circumstances of the world in the future, there would be a global civilization, a worldwide civilization that would have uh, chariots that moved without without horses. So can you command automated carts, automated cars and vehicles are predicted in the Bible. That we'd have a world where events that are occurring in one, uh, one part of the world could be seen and observed through technological means by everyone else in the entire world. So that's not something that was even possible even in the last 50 years. So you have people you know, that have been Christians and believers who have been reading these prophecies and had no way to really see how they could be technically fulfilled. And that in the last 50 years, the possibility for these, these prophecies to have, you know, to take on their most significant impression, meaning, comes to life at this age. So this is, we're in an age of a cyber age, of thermonuclear bombs, an age of flights where we're lifted on eagle's wings and flown around the world on airplanes. Uh, we have this technological advance where we can just get on the phone and call someone in Hong Kong and talk to them in you know, real time because of the, the satellite grid. So this is the kind of world that was being predicted and looked look forward to by ancient prophets that were getting ready to predict how the world was going and the end of this age was going to end. The end of the, end of the Gentiles. The age of the Gentiles coming to a close. The end of this era. How it would close. Of course, the world doesn't necessarily come to an end and just disintegrate, but the age of this particular dispensation, the era of this particular, the time of the Gentiles, as it's called in the Bible, is going to come to a close, and the order of the world as we know it is going to be catastrophically transformed. And that's where we get these ideas like Armageddon. And of course, Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, wasn't really possible as an actual event until we have arrived here in these times. Like I said, in the last 50 years, the possibility for there to be a, a, a multi-million man army. We've never even seen an army that large in history, but now today in China, the symbol of the red dragon, under that symbol we can see that, that the massive army that is big enough to fit the fulfillment of the biblical prophecies is now in existence in China. And of course, China has the symbol of the red dragon. That's another symbol that we see in Revelation, the great red, red dragon. So the, these are highly complex and nuanced accounts of, of scriptural prophecy that people are maybe not aware of. Maybe they're, too, they're more interested in their iPhone or their latest app or, or ordering some Starbucks. or They, they really don't have any concept of the, the era of prophetic determination that's shaping our world. And maybe people don't believe in it, but there was a whole bunch of other people who do. And the circumstances for those prophecies to be fulfilled is, is quickly approaching. So the, the, the debacle in Afghanistan, where we suddenly lost our base, they can say that we left, but we lost our base. And we have these Afghanistan uh, army guys, you know, the Taliban and whatnot, driving around the countryside in our Humvees and using our, our, our equipment and having been militarized 
taking over all that mili military equipment, uh, millions of, of uh, rifles and ammunition and guns. You know, so they were just completely outfitted as a, the Al Taliban was as a, a massive military force that never existed. They didn't, they didn't have the power to operate militarily that way. But as soon as Joe Biden left, it left the entire situation in Kabul and left it all to China and to the uh, to Taliban. It changed the suddenly changed the nature of history, and of course it, it changed the nature of American hegemony too. And of course you know that there are many many military soldiers and Marines and airmen and corpsmen and so on, and Navy naval officers. They're very upset by what's happened in Afghanistan, but nonetheless it happened, and the circumstances cannot easily be altered. So, without going too much uh, too much further into it, we have a couple of things I want to introduce here into the show. We have. For instance, the the Encyclopedia Britannica definition of Armageddon. It says Armageddon, biblical place, Hebrew language, hill of Megiddo, or Har Megiddo means Mount Megiddo. So hill of Megiddo in the New Testament, place where the king of kings of the earth come under demonic influence and under demonic leadership will wage war on the forces of God at the end of history. Armageddon is mentioned in the Bible only once in the Revelation to John, or uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, 1616. Uh, the Palestinian city, I like how they like to say the Palestinians, of course, Palestine didn't exist until Emperor Hadrian created Palestina, and of course, from Palestina, we get Palestine, and, uh, and they tried to rename Israel. Palestine, but of course that did not work. They were, of course, renaming it after their ancient enemies, the Philistines. Of course, David and fought Goliath, the Philistine, and it took them a long time to rout out the Philistines and run them off. And they were, of course, Nephilim. The Philistines were. They were. They had those polluted Nephilim bloodlines. That's why Goliath was such a giant. And David, being a young man uh, anointed by God, he slung, slung his stone and he killed Goliath. Of course, that's the history of, of the Philistines. So Hadrian, being uh, furious with Israel and how much difficulty they were having making Judea into a Roman province, they decided to, to rename the conquered territory after they conquered Judea and, 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 and destroyed Jerusalem. They decided to re rename Jerusalem Palestine. And of course, they uh, nowadays, the United Nations and all these, these newfangled elitists and globalists, they try to push this idea of Palestine on us, but of course we know that that is a fictitious name. So this uh, city of Megiddo located, uh, we're back to the definition now, just get back to that. The city of Megiddo located on a pass commanding a road connecting Egypt and Syria was probably chosen as a symbol for such a battle because it had been the scene of many military encounters owing to its strategic location. Megiddo was also the site of a crucial battle in 1918 during the First World War, and lent its name to the victor, Lord Allenby of Megiddo. The term Armageddon has been used by Protestant fundamentalists to refer to an impending cataclysmic struggle between the forces of good and evil. It has also been used figuratively, often by peace activists, to describe a possible nuclear world war. So I think that's a pretty good place to start for our discussion here about the central nature of biblical prophecy and the coming battle of Armageddon.
word from our sponsor, and we have a very courageous and brave sponsor for this uh, portion of the episode here, a uh, special guest, and the sponsor for this episode is, of course, as you all know, Wendy's Boutique Limited, wendyslimited.com, and wendyslimited.com is your ultimate resource for online boutique items and gifts, uh, women's apparel and fashion uh, items and accessories, uh, fine gold jewelry, and uh, lots of beautiful items, and she used a whole collection, the massive catalog, uh, wendyslimited.com, so you got to join, you got to sign up, and you got to uh, support us over at wendyslimited.com, and it's a wonderful boutique that's starting to grow, and it's going to open up some new locations, I heard, so uh, it's because of your support out there, we hope you guys will kind of pile in and just help build up Wendy's Boutique, so go ahead and sign up at wendyslimited.com, wendyslimited.com, and that's where you'll find all the hottest new styles, everything that's just the, uh, the, the brand name, brand uh, designer labels and brand name designer wear, they got awesome sunglasses, we tried out our Tom Ford sunglasses from wendyslimited.com. So that was a word from our sponsor, uh, wendyslimited.com. I hope you guys will check that out. And and this particular portion of the show, we have a special guest with us. It's going to be David Nikau Wilcoxon, and his um, his site and his uh, he's active on Facebook. He has a huge section on Facebook and some websites. He's active on YouTube and other places at uh, endtimesdeception.com and. Um, and that's the, uh, the, the the page also. So we're going to just go ahead and introduce him now and uh, have a discussion with him. And so this will just be a short introduction. We hope and we plan to have him back for uh, various uh, episodes in the future to get into the nuts and bolts and to the, the nuances and the complexity of the discussion around a biblical prophecy and how it's being fulfilled over time and how it can be clearly seen uh, God's hand is moving and, and his hand in history. So without further ado, we have our special guest, David Nikau Wilcox. So what are you going to ask him? Well, I mean, my my kind of interest right now was kind of like on with Armageddon and just the uh, this kind of alliance you're seeing with all the sudden with Turkey and Russia. I mean, it's like it's been predicted ever since I can remember Bible prophecy. It, it was kind of like some kind of background noise, but now it's really... It's really making, uh, it's really coming clear that there's going to be this confederation of nations that are, that it's going to, you know, be this axis of, of doom that's coming on the world. And that's what the Bible predicted for so long, which is really amazing because people generally think that the Bible is just, uh, antiquated or it's just you know I guess for a long time it wasn't the 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 prophetic keys weren't really unlocked because uh, you know things hadn't really come about yet the world wasn't really technologically advanced you know we just weren't at that point in history and so that's kind of what I'm looking at we're looking at these things coming about especially with China at the center anyone who'd be 
surprised or shocked about Israel becoming a nation. You know, it was predicted that it was predicted so long ago, and that it would be dispersed, and then it's, and suddenly it would come back to a nation, and it, and it fits right in with with the time frame Bible prophecy. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's it's it's, it's astonishing. That's, just, that, that's to me. That's the biggest elephant in the room right there. You know, that's Israel becoming a, a back together after so many thousand years. It's amazing. David Wilcoxon. Hey, Sean. Hey, uh, David. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? We're doing all right. I got uh, me and. Uh, and my co-host on the line here, and we're just, um, just want to take a, some time out of your day today to ask some questions and just kind of touch base. All right. And, um, Who's your co-host? Co-horse. Uh, co-horse. Uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Edward, I, I spoke with you briefly on your your uh, group page, uh, which I found your ideas about the legs and feet. Uh, uh, Iron Myers play. I found that to be pretty interesting. What you thought of it? We have very similar ideas about that. And my my other speaker setup just kind of broke down, so I, I'm having a hard time um, getting uh, my co-host to come through here. But but no, he was asking about uh, the 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 as far as the prophecy in Daniel. When you get down to the very bottom, to the feet of Myri, uh, the toes and the feet are, are clay and and mud, Myri, mud mixed together, right? which I think is an interesting thing because in construction they, they do that a lot with rebar and concrete mixed together too. But um, and another thing I'm interested in too is, is as far as Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon, it's kind of uh, as far as the the prophecy of that. Ever since I can remember, when I was a young man, they they talked about the complexity there with Tubul and, and Meshach, and the idea that this confederacy between Russia and Turkey and China in the Middle East really would come together. And I guess we're seeing that presently, and I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, do you want me to talk about Daniel 2 first, and then the Armageddon? Well, sure. I mean, it's it's really a, a huge subject matter to get into and to present right. it to people. I mean, just the, the entire idea. We're, we're really coming across with thousands of years of, of prophetic history that um, some people maybe are not interested in or don't, don't see it as something that's valid. But as we move through the course of time, it becomes more apparent that ultimately... The, the facts of the prophecies are becoming, you know, for, you know, for whatever reason you want to take that to be, they're, they're coming to life and we're moving as a, as a globe, as a planet, towards this, in this direction, towards um, this kind of catastrophe. So, yeah, I mean, whatever, however you want to take, a, to, to take your start at that. So let me ask you a question just so I understand. I don't, I don't know what y'all believe, so, um, so I don't know how to kind of, position you know my answers it's one thing if you're a historicist and you believe in the historical fulfillment if you believe in the future fulfillment of a lot of prophecy then that's like a different perspective so i mean are you both historicists do you see that most prophecy has been fulfilled or do you think that there's a lot of prophecies to be fulfilled yet well i think that i mean i think that what is most interesting to me is the the process of interference 
um, in the rewriting uh, and, and the revision of prophecy over time, especially really in the translations of the Bible. So I think that you can see that over the course of time that there has been, evolving the Roman papacy, there has been this process of kind of bringing to light the, the true gospel as, a, as, as opposed to the, the contradictory gospel that you see. And it really goes back to, I guess, the translations. I mean, it, there's a lot of complexity there, but it goes back to whether it's the, um, the Latin Vulgate or the Textus Receptus. And then so you get in, and then later you get into um, the uh, Hort's Apostles, and Hort's Apostles are going to really bring out the NIV translation and the New World translation and kind of uh, water down the King James in the English so that it kind of takes on a whole new meaning. So there's been a lot of, of attention paid to the, the Bible and also to prophecy and trying to direct what it means to try to place the, the figure of the Antichrist at the end of history, like some kind of um, Nicolaus Carpathian individual who's going to appear, you know, and uh, so everyone's looking forward to this Antichrist. But in my view, the Antichrist has existed since early on, when, um, when even Jesus Christ himself confronted the figure of the Antichrist who was coming out of the, the Roman in, in, in Imperium. So um, I think we're going to face a final Antichrist figure that's going to totally fulfill becoming the king of Babylon and Revelation, become this, this, like, this specter in future history. I don't know if it's going to be this, this pope or not, but it seems to me that, that we're going to face that kind of crucible that that Revelation talks about and the other prophecies as well. Okay. That gives me a picture. I mean, so you, you don't think that the office of the papacy of the popes of Rome fulfill prophecy as the little horn of Daniel, the son of perdition of Second Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist beast of Revelation? No, I think, right? that, I think that the papacy fits that role. You can see that the papacy becomes the figure of the Antichrist gradually through the centuries, and it doesn't happen all at once. The kind of zenith of the power of the papacy is built up into this this occult throne, if you want. It's it's um, from my point of view, it really became Julius Caesar took on the the, the vestments and the title of Pontifex Maximus, and so you can see the working of the devil behind the building of this imperial seat of power, but that that has continued to stay alive all the way up until now, and so now we're dealing with modern politics. And we have these figures of antiquity in the scene, right? So, um, I think it does both. I think it does. I think it fulfills prophecy over a long period of time, but also I think it does it. Uh, it, it does it symbolically very at the very end, also. So, there's a manifold interpretation. I think we're seeing there. Okay, I mean, I, I'm just kind of referring to specific prophecies such as Daniel 7, Little Horn of Daniel, and it's pointing to, you know, the, the Little Horn of Daniel ruling for 42 months. Mm -hmm. The Revelation beast, sea beast phase of the Roman beast kingdom points to the, the beast, the Antichrist beast ruling for 1260 days. So that's why I was kind of, to me, that maps out to the 1260 year reign of the office of the papacy. Right. So that's why I'm on. See, I, I, agree agree with that. I totally, so I totally agree, I agree with that. Agree with perspective. Yeah. That idea when you see that when, when with Napoleon, when he brings his, his general 
a Napier or, or whoever it is that down and they arrest the Pope. Yeah. yeah, they put him they put him in house arrest. They they really end the civil and spiritual, the temporal power of the Pope is cut off, and then it's restored again, as you're saying, um there uh, was it nineteen twenty nine or so with the latter yeah. entry. So yeah, I see that I see that prophetically being fulfilled. But it doesn't all at the same time. It doesn't mean to me that you won't see an end time uh, uh, reign of of the papacy of the Antichrist come about uh, and 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 reign for three and a half years also. So I, I don't think that one uh, supplants the other, or either or it's either or. I think you can see both. I, I see that also with with the, the the tribulations too. I think that there's an overlapping there throughout history where I think that there there's a historical. Um, interpretation where you can see that these events are occurring over time, and you can see with God's creative power. I mean, look at the gene, the genome. Look at look at the the, the double helix. It's it's perfectly possible for Him to to weave this prophetic tapestry. It's just you know. I mean, so I don't want to put any limitations there and say it's one or the other. But no, I think that you, you we're not we're, we're, the papacy has been there the whole time. There's been many antichrists, but we're building up to this this greater persecution, I think, that's going to happen. We've seen those persecutions occur uh, in the Inquisition, uh, you know, the, 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 yeah. So the times of tribulation, you're you're thinking are still future? Well, I think that they're going to build up here. I mean, I think um, we're going to see um, a final build up to a war. I think that that's, that's just whether you want to introduce the biblical themes or not. If you just want to look at the headlines, I was looking at some of the headlines here. Um, I got a Bitcoin.com news release. Report claims Russia and Iran plan to establish a global gas cartel, Moscow to launch its own precious metals exchange. And then here's another headline. Turkey and China see opportunity in Central Asia after Moscow's Ukraine invasion. And I'll just add one more. Russia, China, and Turkey, new players in the southern Mediterranean countries. So those are just headlines I brought up today. So this is very recent. I think we're going to see this confederacy goes back to Psalms 83 too. So it just it steps out of line more and goes. You know, we're going to go back a little more in time and probably see that. Yeah, as I was always doing just a little bit of research coming into this with you, um, we were I was looking at um, some different pages here. I think it's just fascinating when you go back. The, 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 all the biblical themes are there if you look at um, the Hagarites. Moab, um, the Amalekites, and uh, Edom. And there's this Assyrian confederacy that's really stepping in, and they're the descendants of Esau. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm interested in seeing is that there's going to be some more prophetic fulfillment here, and I think that we're we're in for it as far as a nation. I wonder what you know where we're going to stand. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have. Uh, I mean, that helps me kind of understand where you're coming from. I have more of, I guess, a uh, Simplistic point of view, um, meaning, I mean, I, I, I think the Roman beast kingdom is still in power. It's the fourth beast kingdom of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So John picks up the narrative in Revelation 12 and 13, describes the different phases, three primary phases, which is the Roman emperors, um, then the uh, Antichrist beast popes ruling and reigning for 1260 years, and then the black pope taking control of the Vatican and the Roman peace kingdom. Mm -hmm. So like in my mind, you know, the, the, 
the black pope. You know, they got before, like you said, Napoleon's army took the pope captive, all that stuff. I mean, well, now you're getting into something that's it might be a little bit harder, a little more dense for people. But as far as the black pope being the the superior general or the father general of the Society of Jesus or the men known as the Jesuits, and some people, they've done such a good job in remaining out of the pages of history so that people don't know who they are or are not familiar with them, but... I was well, just, that's the point, is, is leading up to leading up to their suppression by the Pope, many countries had kicked them out because of their, their subversive ways, right? So, and even primarily Catholic countries, such as France. And so, yeah, France, Spain, all these different countries, countries kicking them out because they're so evil, even though those are primarily Catholic countries, which seems odd to kick, kick out Catholic priests, right? But, uh, and that led to the suppression and then the, and you're exactly right. So then when the Pope, Antichrist, these Pope is removed from power, it's not like the black Pope can just step in and say, okay, I'm in control now. Because everybody at that point knew the evil nature of a Jesuit. So nobody's going to listen to him, right? Right. So that's why the Bavarian Illuminati was created. That's why they infiltrated Freemasonry. That's why they created fun organizations, right? Um, you know, many, many fun organizations. That's why they have three city-state corporations, right? right? Vatican City and the City of London and the District of Columbia. So through all those fun organizations, through the three city-state corporations, they rule the world. So... My simplistic mind says Russia's controlled, China's controlled, the U.S. is controlled, every country's controlled except maybe Iran and Syria, which is why those two countries are in the crosshairs. Right. right. So, well, with so Iran, my, my, it's, it's been strange recently because they've been brought into these strange negotiations with uh, with Russia taking the forefront of that. So it's kind of strange right. because their their whole their, their whole point of view is that that they're a danger to to the West and to, to, to Israel because they have to destroy all the, you know, all the, uh, the heretics of their religion. And so that, so the, you know, it's interesting now that the, they're kind of becoming, they're getting pulled into this, this cabal, into this, um, into this confederacy at a time when there looks like they're going to develop these weapons. So, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, I mean they're, they're, they're looking for allies, right? Because I mean, every, every country around them has been taking control of. Right. I think that, so, there, that this web of control that, that I was looking at the, the the gates at Georgetown Washington at Georgetown University and it's it was built in 1789 and that's a, that's an interesting time because that's right at that time of that suppression and the, the United States was one of the few places they could flee to and they built up their power here and that's really how we got over to Washington D.C. anyway but it, but anyway the point is that in the modern in today's uh, modern headlines we're looking at this pivot away from the west and and, the, and of course the, the petrodollar the federal reserve note is about to collapse too so it's, it's a pretty complicated situation we find ourselves in the jesuits are definitely masters of all the, the languages of the world of all the regions um, having their universities everywhere throughout the entire world. They have universities in Baghdad. They have universities in, in Tokyo. And so mm-hmm. they they are doing their level best to control the world. But it must be a, a, a difficult job because the world is not all, always easily controllable. Yeah, well, now they have artificial intelligence. So uh, right. it's, a, man, it's all the, the database. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but that's why they have, you know, 
providential leaders. I think, I don't know if there's 10 main leaders and then you subset out of that and you have leaders that keep reporting to other leaders and they have a whole, whole intelligence gathering, you know, mechanism in place. So well, and with computers and all that stuff, it's, it's a lot easier. It's interesting how the, so another individual I was speaking to about this, how he looks at the, the Jesuit order at the time when they were created as like a new Templar, uh, new Templar Knights. Because the yeah. Templar Knights were a very powerful organization, they were legendary, and they were you know put out of existence by a secret, a secret kind of um, order to to destroy them, and yeah. so they're but they have the same kind of legacy of being kind of controllers, being mil- a military phalanx that's there to to do the bidding or to support the papacy, and um, the, the doctrine of the papacy is very simple. Uh, they the doctrine of the papacy is that. The, whoever is elected by the curia to sit in the papal chair must be ultimately the ruler of the world, the vicar of Christ, the, the individual who sits in the seat of the king of, of, um, of glory and must have a total dominion, whether it be uh, temporal or uh, which is, you know, all dominion on the earth or in heaven. So the, the enforcers of that, the enforcers of that legacy have to think themselves to be of um, a very great um, interest to heaven. You know, they think of, the, of themselves as the ultimate bestowers of civilization and, and, you know, and really the ones who are founding the Christian church in Rome. Because, you know, from what we understand about, about the doctrine of Rome is that anyone outside of, of Rome and anyone outside of that doctrine is going to hell. So they're, they're all heretics. I mean, that, that, that's me and, and everyone I know. And especially everyone in America, because America was created as a as a country who was in rebellion to its king and was um, going against the divine right of kings, and they were pursuing their their Bibles. Um, that, that was how America got founded. So I think that ultimately that we're a target, you know, historically well, uh, of the papacy and well, of the Jesuits too. Well, I mean, I mean you know, there's, there's both sides of the story with the founding of America. There's the one side where a lot of people came here believers to escape the persecution right in europe by the jesuits so they escaped here and, and before this country was founded it was illegal for a catholic to uh hold an office to be a lawyer to vote <laughs> right i right. think even to carry out their mass and so well, i think that at that time the, the, the world the world at large was aware of the counter-reformation and that they were aware that they were fleeing the old world of Europe to the new world where there will be freedom and they were fleeing the Inquisition. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that the Jesuits in their suppression, you know, fled here under who was a general Ricci, Ricci or whoever. And they came here, right. they established, they, they had to take their, just like the Templars, they had to scatter, they had to go underground and they had to take their great wealth and power and, and put it somewhere where it could be put to use. So I think that well, they it, probably were made the, he made the point about Jesuit Georgetown University. Right. So, okay, so we went from you can't hold office, you can't vote, you can't do this, you can't do that because you're a Catholic, to, oh, wait, we founded the country, and here's the Constitution, and here's our amendments, and now Jesuits can do all those things. Right. So, see, so you got to look at the Constitution and go, okay, well, what it really did was it empowered the Jesuits to take control of this country. It empowered them to be a lawyer. It empowered them to uh, hold office, right? So, so the Constitution isn't what everybody thinks it is. 
it was designed to give them power to take control and for people not to notice. And, and like you said, they founded Georgetown University at the very founding of this country. That's a huge clue. Right. Right? It is a huge they clue. They picked Jesuit Carroll Brother owned the land. Right? So a, a Jesuit Carroll Brother was in, put in charge. He was one of the guys put in charge of finding the land for the capital of this country. And then, oh, wait. One of his, I forget what it is, his cousin or whatever, owned the land, which became the District of Columbia, which just happened to be in Virginia and Maryland. Right. So, right oh, wait, Virgin Maryland, right? So, so the yeah. whole narrative is contrived, right? It's all. Well, I think you know, that I, mean, I think that the the founders of this of this the pro, of the of the republic had in mind one thing, but they uh, they were people who were dispersed common folks who, you know, who were farmers and who were, who were just looking for a place to have freedom. And, um, right. and they, they established a, a country in Philadelphia, but ultimately it became something that was really, uh, ultimately when you look at just the, the documentation itself, there was a time when that even the wording uh, in the constitution was different. It wasn't in all caps at the top. There was a, a corporate kind of takeover and the, the right. Jesuits are very organized in how these things work, being in a, a very ancient or, order, having a lot of power. And so I think that they took, they did, they did establish, if you go into the Capitol now and you look and you see the apotheosis of George Washington, uh, like he's right. some kind of demigod, I don't think that's what the founders intended, but that's, we, we ultimately got empire. The individual right. nation, the, the individual nations who, were, who became states became subjected to Washington, D.C., but originally they had their own sovereignty. Um, so uh, we were talking also um, about the executive order. So um, the, the process of the president becoming this kind of mini dictator where he can issue these proclamations and they're like law. And that, that started under Abraham Lincoln and it's kind of becoming more and more severe. And people love Trump and they, 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 they wear the Trump hat on the, you know, I don't want to wear anyone's name on my forehead, you know, in a hat or, you know, I just, it's just not a place for, I just don't, you know, I just don't accept that. But ultimately, I think that he didn't stop the process either. He issued executive orders. He raised the Federal Reserve debt. He could have, you know, ended this the the process of this becoming an empire. I mean, it's not a republic anymore in my mind. So, well, like you pointed to, I mean, the the original Constitution was not in all caps, and then here comes the Civil War. And if you read the testimony of Lincoln and Chinnicky, who was uh, a, a former Roman priest, who was Lincoln's friend uh you read their testimony and you know that they believe that it was the jesuits who positioned this country to have a civil war right right so they did that for many reasons to create division all that stuff for many believers protestants to die right here but not only that but to bankrupt the country you know and then you then you go forward and we end up a bankrupt country from all this stuff and then they introduced you know uh the act of what 1871 and got a treasonous Congress to pass that act, and that created a new constitution in the district, the city-state corporation of the District of Columbia, which the constitution is written in. You know, the United States of America is written in all caps. It's a different entity. Right. That, that's really so what the it point. is. So the wording can be whatever the wording that has no more power, because ultimately we're going to go from this de jure, uh, you know, republic of the people to this uh, military government, which they're moving towards. Which is which is backed up by you know Lord Rothschild and all that stuff as far as funding and stuff. So, so you know like with Trump with anybody with any president, they're all subservient to 
their boss, right? Who controls their boss, who controls the city state corporation of the District of Columbia. So and they, all fly in, they all fly in a room and sit at, sit at that funny little desk like they're like at detention with the principal or something and you have the Pope there. Right. It's funny. They all they all have to, right. I guess, yeah. or they... Look at the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, right? Remember when um, the biggest image in my head is when Pope Francis was here. Right. He's sitting there talking right there at the podium of the House of Representatives. And right behind him is a, a Roman mace. And then right behind him on the walls are two Fasci symbols. Right. It occurs which, to you that this whole thing was arranged for this moment to occur when this Jesuit pope would show up and stand at that point, you know? Well, and it just shows that their authority, it shows Rome's authority in that place. Right. Well, so, it's interesting, too, think about this. Um, if you go back, this it's a little note of history. Uh, Ford Theater, where Lincoln was uh, shot and assassinated, the, the plot of ground where Ford Theater existed, um, it was a long-time place where people could go. It was like a museum. People would go and see it. But it was replaced with a museum to uh, Pope John Paul II. Is sitting wow. in the exact location of that. So it's just one of those things, you know? You have to right. just go through and, and take a closer look. And Washington, D.C. has become um, this pinnacle of military power across the world with the Pentagon and with all that. And, and of course, not to be, uh, you know, like to, to, to speak out against our own country or to think that there's anything wrong with people serving in their military, but you have to look at who is directing the military and to what war and to what end. It seems right. to me that we are way, we're spread very thin and we're way over our skis here. We have no business being, uh, doing half the things that we're doing across the, the nation. You know, it's, it's for another agenda, obviously. Right. And that's what um, the, the University of Georgetown is at the center of that, writing the laws, uh, putting out, they even do the training for, uh, for if you want to become a spy and do uh, overseas foreign relations kind of service, you, get, you have to go to their schools to get the training. So... Yeah, that's it. They, they control education, so they can shape people's minds however they want, and then they can also, you know, through through the university, through, uh, you know, fraternities, whatever, they can find moldable, shapeable people to use for their agenda, such as skull and bones, right? right. So they, they find people that'll, that'll go along with what they want and will be usable, and, you know, you see how that played out with the Bushes, you know. George Bush Sr. and Jr., both school and bones. Mm -hmm. Both. And, and John Kerry. Yeah. He, he's still looming. Exactly. He's still looming about. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting because reading the history, there was this this point with, with um, it was the the John, um, uh, the name eludes me. It was this Mason. It, he, he basically wrote a, a tell all. But they eventually, ultimately, they killed him to shut him up, and they became so widely blown. Uh, in American society at that time that it was called the John Morgan affair, I think something like that. Huh. Um, okay. So they, at that point, they, the, they almost outlawed Freemasonry and um, the, the whole affair took place. And in fact, um, I, what I heard was um, uh, Morgan's rum is based, uh, named after that Captain Morgan. So yeah, it was the Captain Morgan affair. And ultimately he exposed a lot of their secrets and handshakes and symbols and their, their background information and he was disappeared, and when it went to trial, um, the, the, the judge and the lawyers and everyone involved in the court were all Freemasons. So this, the outrage over the whole situation became so explosive that they, they started a political party called the Anti-Mason Party. And this anti-masonry party went around, and they just, they, they, at that time, it was right in the, uh, the, 18, the early 1800s. And so it occurs to me that 
um, this huge like anti-Masonic movement occurred in the 1820s, just before they created Skull and Bones in 1833. So they, they created, yeah. So they had this kind of need for that upward, uh, that secret upward uh, occult uh, mobility towards higher office or that control system, that occult control system really blew up in their face. So it seems like they, cre- they created another one at Yale. And also at that time, at Yale, at New Haven, they also created the Knights of Columbus, which was at 1832, and I think they created the Skull and Bones in 1833 at, at New Haven, Connecticut. So the, with those two kind of like thrown in author kind of uh, concepts or, you know, occult models, they were able to, you know, get us into the Civil War, and, and they've been really controlling things ever since. Um, it's, right. it, and it, it, was, it blew my mind when I realized, looking at uh, Alexander Rob, uh, Alexandra Robinson's book, um, about Skull and Bones that she reveals that they were an ultramontane knighthood and they had to, at their initiation, go in and there was uh, somebody dressed up as the Pope and they needed to get down on their knee and, and kiss his foot, his slipper foot, as part of their initiation. So, so Skull right. and Bones was just another extension of Jesuit power, you know? In what would have been uh, a Protestant university of Yale. So. It's amazing. Well, but, um, you know, it's been about 30 minutes. I just, um, this has been an intro with you. I want to talk to you some more and I want to put some more of your ideas and, and your, um, your, 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 your positions on prophecy are really fascinating. I, I noticed, um, just by looking at your website and stuff, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, and we you know with that, would you have any kind of last words you want to throw in there? <laughs> so much you can talk about. Yeah, I know. We'll have to come back and revisit this again. I mean, there, there's so many. There's it's it's a huge historical like library of information you have to get into, and so uh, right. I find that to be the difficulty with doing a show like this with is really introducing ideas to people so they can kind of like get an idea of what we're even talking about, or you know what I mean. There's a lot, a lot there. Yeah, I mean, if anybody's interested, they can go to the website, and you know, there's a timeline on there that kind of goes through. Um, just a summary of what the seals, trumpets, and bulls, you know, are pointing. What are they describing to? It shows you what's been fulfilled during the last 1900 years. Mm-hmm. Shows you where we're at, where I believe we're at, and then what will happen next as we wait for Messiah's return. So that's on the Revelation Timeline Decoded dot com website. Just on the menu, you can click on Timeline. No, I think it's fascinating because I think people think that there's a lot more yet to be fulfilled, and maybe right. there isn't. Maybe we're a lot closer to to this uh, well, this point than people realize. Yeah, most of the great theologians of the 16th through 20th century were historicists, and they believe that we are in the we've been in the process of having Revelation fulfilled since since it was written, mm-hmm. and that's what it says in the first verse. It says these things will take place shortly. Verse three says the time is at hand. So it was saying that these prophecies are going to start to be fulfilled after it was written and we can see that in the starting with the first seal we can see what that represents and that it started right after it was written so there's a lot we're going to get into i hope that we can get together again very soon maybe in the following week and do another uh, another portion of this and just go further with it but yeah i think it's interesting and i found that timeline to be fascinating so but yeah, um, awesome. yeah. Thank you again, Mr. Wilcoxon, David Nikau Wilcoxon, here with our guests, and thank you again, sir. So as we're developing the show and we're going forward, and we're trying to find ways to reach new levels of information and clarity regarding the historical record and the reality of the truth 
as it as it regards uh, our, our history, how America became what it is. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of distorted doctrines out there that try to steal away the preeminence of of America's destiny. And of course, that's in the hands of, of God. And I think you can see that there have been definitely traitors and malefactors and uh, betrayers in our midst here in, in the development of America and have led it to become this totalitarian dictatorship and invo- inverted totalitarian control system over and against everything it was meant to be. So it was meant to be a way for popular government and democracy to empower the people to form a constitutional republic. And instead, in its place, we have this papal fiefdom, this world police state, this military government that's enslaved the people with social security numbers and federal reserve notes and brought the rest of the world into a state of terror so that everywhere in the world from Afghanistan to Jakarta wants to be rid of the American influence. And of course, there was a day and an age when the the powerful American Navy and the wonderful military of America was lauded as the freedom fighters of the free world. But today, we are really nothing more than a mercenary force for the deep state cabal that's operating out of Washington, D.C. and London and Rome and and you can see that they're going to, in the future, build up their treasure city of Babylon to become a new, I'm sure, a new uh, district of absolute global power that they're that they're trying to establish here. And I think that's that can be read in, in the predictions and the prophecies as well as the resurgence of a neo Babylon. So as we're kind of developing um, the the basis for for this whole study, and we're going to be blessed and edified and elucidated to have teachers and authors and guests like David Nikau Wilcoxon to help us uh, understand where we're at in Bible prophecy. And to that end, I just want to, I found this fascinating uh, write-up at Bible.org, and I'll I'll add it in in the show notes. But it's a a fascinating little essay, and it's a write-up called Armageddon and the Second Coming of Christ. And whether you're just a curious person, or you're really a Protestant fundamentalist, or you're somebody who is just interested in, in the worldview of the Bible and prophecy, and what you know, people who are mainline full gospel believers, what they were really thinking, this is going to be a kind of a contextualization of the whole subject. So let's go ahead and just read it into the into the show here. The dramatic conclusion of the times of the Gentiles, quote-unquote, is described in prophecy as a gigantic world war which is climaxed by the second coming of Christ. The war that brings to a close the times of the Gentiles, which already has embraced 2,500 years of history, is also the final effort of Satan and his strategy of opposition to the divine program of God. The second coming of Christ is God's answer. Some of the major elements of this conflict have already been considered and are now I need only to be related one to the other. And so we have this section here, the beginning of the final world conflict. And you can imagine that as we go into this kind of world conflict, you can imagine that people who are Bible believers uh, foresee the, the the coming of Jesus Christ again into the, the, the into the world stage. And I think that's, you can't really define, it's, it's, it's unquantifiable how exciting or how important 
such a subject matter is in the, in the world of Bible believers and Christians. So let's just continue here. The Great World War, which will engulf the Middle East at the end of the age, is an outgrowth of the world situation during the time of the Great Tribulation. The Roman Empire, formed earlier, has now extended its power over, quote-unquote, all kindreds, tongues, and nations, Revelation 13.7. The world government formed at the beginning of the Great Tribulation is scheduled in prophecy to endure for 42 months or three and a half years, Revelation 13.5. At its beginning, there is no serious challenge of the power and authority of the world ruler who is able to assume supreme power not only in the political field but also receives recognition and worship as God and controls the economic power of the entire world. His reign is afflicted, however, by, by a series of great judgments of God described in the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, and the outpouring of the vials of the wrath of God, Revelation 6, 1 through 1824. So you can relate this whole, as we kind of digress here, this whole uh, paradigm, you can see it scripturally uh, as a symbolic analogy or as a prophetic archetype. You can see it in scripture when you have the figure of the the god king or the high priest ruler of Egypt who is Pharaoh. You can see that when he has to face off against Moses, how Egypt is the great pinnacle of world empire is struck and destroyed by ten plagues. And the plagues are disastrous. Even the entire Nile is turned to blood. And so in the same uh, understanding of, of, of prophecy that's coming, you can see that the the oceans are, are said to be turned to blood the way that in a smaller prophetic view, the Nile was turned to blood. So we can see that this particular world ruler that's coming into view in the opinion of this host and the, the guest host that we had, it's in our opinion that the only person who could fit this world ruler is none other than the figure of the Pope. And the Pope has the doctrine and the historical precedence centuries and centuries of popes have brought to bear this the preeminence of political and religious authority over other countries and other matters and in fact the, the of course as we discussed the jesuit order is there to make sure as the shock troops of the papacy that the pope assumes this role of absolute world power so when we're talking about antichrist we're talking about the the, the rise of the papacy back to a position that it held during the Dark Ages, which is absolute sovereign power and governor of the world, which was one of the titles of the Pope at that time. So let's get back into the article here. The disruptive forces of these judgments is keenly felt throughout the world, and it soon becomes evident that the promised utopia, which this ruler uh, was designed to produce, is not going to be fulfilled. Many students of prophecy have noted the trinity of evil which characterizes the end time. In such respects, this trinity corresponds to the trinity of the Godhead in heaven. The ultimate source of power and evil in the end time is none other than Satan himself, referred to as the great red dragon, and as that old serpent called the devil and Satan, Revelation 12.9. The political as well as the religious power which dominates the world is unquestionably Satan, and for this reason, it is stated in Revelation 13.4 that the world, quote-unquote, worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. Satan assumes much of the same power and prerogatives uh, as he pretends as though he is God. So he, as he tries to emulate God the Father, he tries to have this 
semblance of supposed uh, deity and power as he tries to mimic God. So we'll continue on. Um, of course, they're, they're, they're building up the prophetic silhouette of the world war, the Antichrist. And so what I'm trying to point out to you is that this world war is already in place. He already is in control of politics and world religion. He already has a seat at the United Nations. And he is none other than the Pope. The world ruler, who is Satan's masterpiece as a counterfeit of Christ, or a vicar of Christ, is the actual supreme dictator of the entire world, and in a sense, is Satan incarnate. He is undoubtedly a brilliant man, intellectually and dynamic personality, and he is completely dominated by Satan. In keeping with the satanic approach of this imitation and counterfeit of God's program, the world ruler is Satan's king of kings and lord of lords on earth. Many students of scripture assign the term Antichrist to this person. The third member of the unholy trinity is the beast coming out of the earth, who assists the world ruler, performing satanic miracles and causing all men to worship the image of the beast. Revelation 13, 12. He is apparently is instrumental in linking the economic, religious life of the world, and that only those who worship the beast can buy or sell. This personage is undoubtedly the same as, quote-unquote, the false prophet, Revelation 19.20, and in every respect, he is the right-hand man and the expediter of the world ruler. And this, in his activities, he corresponds to some extent to the ministry of the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ, so they're trying to show as if this is some kind of triunity uh, of satanic fellows here. And thus, he for this, uh, this person, the false prophet, quote-unquote, forms the third member of the evil trinity. The world situation is therefore firmly in the grasp of Satan and Satan's man, who is the world dictator, and the false prophet who heads up the satanic world religion of the Great Tribulation. So there's a lot of uh, contextualization there, but it's pretty simple in my mind that if we can take off our blinders and unblind ourselves and we can receive the light and we can see that this world ruler who's going to control religion, control uh, uh, politics, control of uh, the world economy, is the Pope, then we can see, easily see that the false prophet individual takes on another dimension here in order to become a one-world system. So the, the false prophet, and we know who which religious system is enthralled to a false prophet. We have a religious system around the world who bows down and puts its forehead on the ground in the name of prophet, right? Their prophet. And so this prophet, Muhammad, this false prophet, and so you can see that all the other individuals, um, the, the Osama bin Ladens of the world, are all little false prophets. They're little emulations and copies of Muhammad, right? They, they look like Muhammad. They have Muhammad's beard. They're ready to commit jihad like Muhammad. They're just little offshoots of the false prophet religion of Islam. So you can see that if the false prophet, who is the leader of Islam, or the caliph, and the Antichrist, who is the ruler of Rome and the ruler, of, supposed ruler of churchianity, and, the, and the, the, the religious leader of the world is the Pope. If you have the, the combination of the Pope and the false prophet or the leader of Islam coming together into one system, you would have a unity between Catholicism and Islam, and you would have uh, the, the beginning of this one world global system that w would be irresistible, that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark of these uh, of, the, the, of the beast or the mark of these of this this unholy trinity. And so you can see that uh, Pope Francis or Mario Bergoglio, if you want, has made a great effort, a massive effort to reach out 
and to um, to give an olive branch over to Islam and to create this uh, Christ Islam, right? So Christ Islam is coming about, and we can see that they're trying to join these religions together and show that they're both Abrahamic religions. They're both both religions that preach about Mary and how she's such a blessed woman of all women, and so in, in many ways. Islam, like we talked about in past episodes, Islam and Romanism line up. So that's what you're going to see here. They're, I think they're looking for a Nicolaus Carpathian, you know, Donald Trump individual to step up and suddenly control world religion, suddenly control the world economy and the world politics. But if you can see that, that the Pope, he's already there. Every, he's already a huge celebrity. He's like a rock star everywhere he goes. People like, uh, you know, wave palm branches at the guys if he's Christ himself. So this is the figure of the Antichrist. It's time for you to take off your blinders. Uh, people back in the 1700s knew this, and it's information that, uh, like our guest was pointing out, if you're if you're a futurist, if you're looking for the future Antichrist to appear, it's never going to happen. If you're waiting for raptures to come and take you away, it's not going to work like that. But you need to recognize that the Antichrist is already on the world stage. It has been for centuries. So let's continue on here with our reading. Satan's man, who is the world dictator, uh, along with the false prophet who heads up the satanic world religion of the Great Tribulation. In spite of the satanic control of the world, this is in Revelation 16, 16, as the Great Tribulation moves on to its close, major sections of the world rebel against their ruler, and this sets the stage for the final Great World War. The Gathering of the Armies of the World. So we're going to move towards the subject of the Middle East and Armageddon. And of course, this is something that's been in Bible prophecy for, for, for you know, centuries. This is something that's been written into the Old Testament for, for a very long time. So as we're seeing it being fulfilled now in the Middle East, and just like our, our guest host pointed out, even the arrival of Israel to be re-emerging as a nation on the world stage in 1948 is absolutely explosive when it comes to, to world politics, because until 1948, you really couldn't have a fulfillment of any of these uh, uh, these prophecies because Israel didn't exist as a nation. And now that it does, you can see that all these events are swiftly coming about. So let's read, read on here. The armies of the world which converge upon the Middle East, according to Revelation 16, 13, are induced to engage in the final conflict by satanic influences. This is introduced in the statement of John the, the Apostle, quote-unquote, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth, unto the whole world, to gather them for the great and terrible day of God Almighty. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So that's Revelation 16, and it's starting to show you the prophetic outline for, for why this battle is happening and, and how it's basically being orchestrated by God since the beginning, beginning of time to place all of his enemies in one place, right? So let's read on. There has been endless speculation as to the identity of the three unclean spirits like frogs and what, they, what that means. The passage itself indicates plainly that there are spirits of devils or demons, and unquestionably, they are fallen angels under the command of Satan who are sent forth to draw the kings of the world into this final conflict. Humanly speaking, they are gathering to wrest the world rulership from the Roman ruler. So I guess that's that's an interesting reference there, that it, it recognizes that this world ruler has to be a Roman. So there again, we have to link it back prophetically to the Pope again. In the satanic purpose, however, the armies of the world are gathered to fight the armies of heaven, 
which will accompany Christ at his second coming. As in so many undertakings of Satan, such as is supremely illustrated in the crucifixion of Christ, the very program of Satan is its own destruction, and although Satan is in inevitably impelled to gigantic opposition to Christ, he only sets the stage for the triumph of God. It is to facilitate the gathering of these armies that the Euphrates River is dried up, and that the armies from the east may converge without difficulty upon the Middle East. Three major armies are mentioned in the Bible, namely the army of the north, the army from the east, and the army from the south. These three armies are combining their efforts to wrest power from the Roman ruler, who may be considered as the king of the west. Although this title is never given to him in scripture, the focal point for their gathering is declared in Revelation 16.16 16, to be, quote-unquote, a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Although various explanations have been given of this title, it seems to refer to the Valley of Estreon, also known as the Valley of Jezreel, located to the east of Megiddo in northern Israel. The word Armageddon actually means Mount of Megiddo, from Har means Mount, and Megiddo is the place. The broad valley that is described is approximately 14 miles wide and 20 miles long and historically has been the scene of many great battles of the past. The modern times, the area became a great swamp, but with the revival of the area under the state of Israel, the water has now been drained, is a fruitful, beautiful plain, well suited for a great army. It is obvious, however, that this is only the central staging area for the war, as actually the size of the armies involved preclude the possibility of confining them simply to this one valley. As scripture indicates, the war rages for some 200 miles north and south, thereby engulfing the entire Holy Land. Scripture goes on to provide detail on the characteristics of the final world battle. The main significance is that they are assembled in or near the Holy Land at the time of the second advent, and they oppose Christ in his return to earth. However, some indication of the nature of the battles preceding the second coming of Christ is given in Daniel 11. The order of introduction taken is chronological. It appears the first stage of the battle is an attack by the king of the south. And Daniel 11, 4, at that time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, quote-unquote. In rapid succession, an attack also comes from the north. Apparently, it is successful. And the scripture states that the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. The king of the north may be Russia. The force of his invasion is such that he proceeds through the Holy Land and conquers Egypt, at least temporarily. The warfare brought by the invasion of the king of the north and the king of the south, however, is, is now followed by another phase of this massive battle, the arrival of the host from the east. According to Daniel 11, tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly take away many. Quote, unquote, the arrival of the forces from the orient, described as a army of 200 million in Revelation 9, 16 brings on the last phase of this world struggle. And at the time, the second coming of Christ, the war is raging in a number of areas. At least four geographical locations are mentioned in the Bible as figuring into the final struggle. Center, of course, is Mount Megiddo, or Armageddon, where the main forces are located. Another focal point for the battle is the city of Jerusalem itself, according to Jer uh, Zechariah 12.2. A siege will be declared against the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be defended to some extent by the power of God, 
by miraculous intervention, the armies of the world have great difficulty in subduing the city. It is stated in Zechariah 12.3, quote-unquote, In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All the that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces, although all the people of the earth be gathered against it. So another reference of the drawing of, of the, the, the battle, of the, the, the drawing of the armies of the world against Jerusalem. The passage goes on to say how the horsemen are smitten and the riders are struck with madness in the battle. At the time of the second coming of Christ, however, Jerusalem has finally been taken and is entered by the army and, and is in the process of being subdued at the very moment that the glory of Christ in the heavens and his second advent appears. This is stated unequivocally in Zechariah 14, 2-3, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravaged, and the half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the whole city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. Quote, unquote. So you can see that it's at this very moment, and the very day, and the very hour, when, when, when they actually begin to break through the lines and begin to enter into Jerusalem, the, the city itself, that Jesus Christ is going to appear. So this is very specific. And then there's a, a whole network of scriptures that lay this out, and going from one, one prophecy to the next. And if you look at the prophets, the heart of the prophets is relating to this very subject. So we carry on. Another geographic location is that of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, mentioned in Jewel 3, 2-12. Although there is some dispute as to its location, it appears to be a valley immediately east of Jerusalem. Here, according to Joel, God declares, quote-unquote, I will gather all nations together, and I will bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have parted my land. Quote-unquote. This Valley is the scene of the divine judgment mentioned in Joel 3.12. Whether this gathering has to do with the battle for Jerusalem or is a subsequent event to the second is not entirely clear. Still, another geographical location mentioned is that of Edom, Isaiah 34.1-6, and Isaiah 63.1-6. The awful bloodshed stemming from this conflict is indicated in Revelation 9.18, where one-third of the armies are declared to be totally destroyed by the army of the East. And in the statement of Revelation 14.20, that the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the, it was as high as a horse's bridle, so you can imagine it's about five feet high. This is how devastating the bloodshed is going to be. Although the exact deployment of the forces and the precise character of the successive battles which precede the second coming of Christ are not indicated in Scripture, it is sufficient for us to know that the Holy Land will be crowded with the armies of the world in preparation for the dramatic second event of Christ. This is the final showdown of Gentile power dominated by Satan in the blasphemous opposition to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As the armies of the world are engaged in a struggle for the world throughout the Holy Land and in the very act of sacking the city of Jerusalem, the glory of the Lord appears in heaven and the majestic procession pictured in Revelation 19 takes place. So this is what everyone's talking about. This is the whole context of the future prediction of Jesus Christ in the Bible at this time when when the Battle of Armageddon takes place. At the head of the procession is Christ, described as riding on a white horse coming to judge the world and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and his head 
uh, are our many crowns, his vestures dipped in blood. Accompanying him are, are the armies of heaven, also riding on white horses and clothed in fine linen. So this, you know, for many people, they'll look at this as totally uh, mythological and totally fantastic and unbelievable. But for Christians, you have to understand that the pinnacle uh, and, the, and the very point of the spear of biblical prophecy leads up to this very moment where Jesus Christ is proved to be real, to prove not to be a myth, and beyond all shadows of doubt, arrives to save his people at a moment when they're about to be destroyed by the armies of Rome and the, the ten kings in the world order. So you can see this is something that could easily come about. We're at a point now where the BRICS nations, the BRICS-aligned nations in Russia are starting to create their own networks for in their economy for buying and selling oil and, and for trading precious metals. So they're starting to cut the whole Federal Reserve System and the petrodollar out of the, the global economy. And so when that happens, um, they're going to no longer rely on American technology or energy and will be huge targets. Um, you know, And so you can imagine that the, the protection that Israel has benefited from for all these centuries because of American power will be much diminished and they'll find themselves exposed in the Middle East, surrounded by enemies. So this idea of a final uh, you know, world battle that will try to seek to destroy Israel and destroy Jerusalem is something that is, is almost uh, easy to predict. It's something that's, that's, you know, it doesn't require a biblical prophecy in order to, to see the, what's coming about. So let me just carry on and finish up this little reading here. So we're talking about the procession of the saints out of heaven at this moment so that the world will finally get to see that, you know, what their eyes had refused to believe in the past, that the arrival of Jesus Christ and his saints on earth. In contrast to his lowly birth in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, where he was laid in a manger, this advent is the triumphant king of kings, lord of lords, coming to claim the world for which he died and over which he is now going to exercise his sovereign authority and absolute power, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The verses which follow invite the fowls of the earth to feed upon the, the wrecked carnage of the flesh of the kings and the mighty men of the, of, and, and all their horses and all the, the ruined uh, equipment of the world, of the world militaries that were coming to destroy Jerusalem. According to Revelation 19.19, the armies of the world, which have previously been fighting each other, forgot their differences, and united to fight against Christ in his second advent to earth. John writes, I saw, uh, quote, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on, the, on his horse and against his army. Their struggle against such an adversary, however, is useless. It is apparent that they are put to death not by ordinary military struggle, but by the sword of authority proceeding out of the mouth. Revelation 19, all the armies and all their equipment and all their horses apparently are put to death at one stroke. But the beast, the world ruler, and the false prophet, the religious ruler of the world, are taken alive. And according to Revelation, these are both cast alive into the lake of fire and burning with, brim with brimstone, and they're, they're cast into hell, and this is their doom. So, you know, we can go into this a little bit more. Thus comes to an end in one dramatic blow the power of the gentiles which had controlled jerusalem from the time of nebuchadnezzar 606 bc all the way up to the, to the time of emperor titus who was involved with having jerusalem totally destroyed and having the women raped and having the the place burnt to the ground and everyone killed two or three million jews were slaughtered 
So uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Emperor of Rome have that in common, which is what the Antichrist will attempt to do for the third time. So as we read on, thus ends also the satanic control of the Gentiles, who had been a demonstration of satanic power, guilty of blasphemy and the blood of countless martyrs, especially in the oppressing the nation of Israel. It goes on to say that, Gen- that Jerusalem will no longer be trodden underfoot by Gentiles and controlled by Roman popes or conquered by Knights of Malta, right? Jerusalem will finally at this point be free. So you can see that this point in history is, is quickly approaching and this battle, you know, our, our, our guest, David Nikau Wilcoxon was pointing out that the, that the river uh, Euphrates is almost entirely dried up if you look at the photographed imagery over the last 50 years, I mean, you can see that the, in many different ways, whether you believe it or not, the actual facts and the details of the prophecy relating Armageddon are, are quickly approaching. And I think that, uh, that you could see these events practically occurring in the next 25 years or less. So we, when we say we're at the end of the age, I think it's important to put that information in the, in, in the front burner and to put it in the forefront of our view and focus like a laser on what's most important in life. And um, like always, we have the show notes. We have all this, these articles, all this information in the show notes and attachments. And we also have the end times deception pages and all the information for Mr. Wilcoxon. So you can go ahead and review his, his prophecy thesis. And as always, we hope that you uh, were edified and we hope that we could elucidate for you some fascinating information. And um, so once again, it's been Looking Glass Forum and we hope you'll be back again and we can um, have more information to discuss. Uh, So we'll see you next time.